0: of 2 Timothy, chapter number 3, and I'll meet you there in just a little while. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Last week, we considered, uh, I believe it was eight reasons why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And uh, you know, whenever you look at all of that e- evidence, I, it's hard to imagine someone Refuting that, but the fact of the matter is, no amount of evidence will convince some people. Nothing you do. And uh, I, I love what old uh, an old preacher by the name of Ironside said many years ago. Whenever he was dealing with people, and you know, and they were resisting what he was trying to say, and somebody asked him, "Well, what do you do whenever they?" you know, say, I don't want to hear it, you know, I I don't believe it or whatever. He said, just keep quoting Scripture. You know, just keep, because it's not our arguments for it. The power of God's Word is in God's Word. But all of that being said, there does on occasion come a time when we need to stop wasting our time. I believe that's what, The Lord's talking about, uh, you know, he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Because there will be some folks that, you know, that will mock you and uh, ridicule the Word of God. And and just comes time that we can't spend all of our time dealing with people that have made it known that they're not going to listen, that they don't care. You know, that's a hard statement for me to say because I always try to encourage people to don't give up, don't give up. And, you know, and so... uh, it's certainly something we need to pray about, but I, I'm, I'm bringing all of this up to just let you know that that we can't make things happen. We can't, regardless of how hard we try. The Bible says there in Nazareth, Jesus could do no mighty works there. Think about that. Uh, he himself, nobody could ever preach like Jesus, but even Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there. Uh, but there are others who will listen, and that's kind of my point, you know, uh, if the people you're dealing with, is just, you've exhausted every effort and tried everything you know, and they continue to be obstinate, well, uh, there are other people that will listen to what you have to say. The fact of the matter is, though, even after we come to the conclusion that the Bible is the Word of God, there are yet things that need to be learned. Because there, you know, there are many good Bible-believing Christian people. They don't doubt the Bible one bit whatsoever. They've got that settled in their heart, and they accept it for what it is, as the Word of God, but they don't understand how we got the Bible, and they don't understand because they've never heard anybody teach about it, and and consequently, you know, they're ignorant of that, and... I think it helps us in in our dealing with other people. If we're able, as we said last week, the Bible commands us to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is within us. And so I, I think, you know, it just stands to reason that in dealing with people... There, a lot of folks don't understand, how how did we get the Bible? It didn't just drop down out of the sky. It didn't just suddenly appear on the bestseller list. So how did we get the Bible? Well, that's the purpose of the message tonight, because we're going to talk tonight about the inspiration of the Bible. And we need to think about this because of the fact that the, that the authority of God's Word is under attack today, perhaps as never before. Now, I say that realizing that we're not so much aware of it as in some times past, where Bibles have been confiscated and taken and piled up and burned, and we don't see that going on here in America today, and yet there is a battle raging for the Bible. And uh, a, a lot of times, the most fierce battle that's going on is in our uh, in, in our seminaries and in our universities and what have you. Uh, you know, the institutions of higher learning and some kid, you know, raised in a little country church always accepting the Bible as the Word of God and they go off to college and they get some professor, you know, that berates the Bible and, and tears it down and, you know, finally they conclude, well, you know, he's a whole lot smarter than my daddy is. Maybe, you know, he's got a point. I don't need to be listening to the Bible. And so, there's a battle raging for the Bible. And until people are really convinced that, that the Bible is God's Word, folks, they don't have any hope of heaven whatsoever. They don't have any standard by which to govern their lives. And so we need to assure them the Bible is God's Word. And one way that we can do that is to help them understand how it is that we got the Bible. So we're talking about the inspiration of the Bible. And the three things tonight that I want to point out the Scriptures were revealed by God. Secondly, the Scriptures were recorded by men. And thirdly, the Scriptures were received by the churches. We'll talk a little bit about each one of those. First of all, the Scriptures were revealed by God. I wish I had time to read the entirety of chapter three, Second Timothy 3 because it describes the perilous times that shall come. And then when we get down, you know, near the end, verse 13 says, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But he says to Timothy, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast uh, learned them. by God. Notice the first part of verse number 16. All scripture is given by inspiration. Now this phrase is made up of three Greek words and so to understand it, to really get a handle on it, we need to Consider each one of those, and we're not, this isn't a lesson in the Greek language or anything like that, but we just need to understand that there are three Greek words that make up this phrase. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And I'm going to start with the last first, and I think you'll see why. And it has to do with what do we mean by inspiration? What do we mean by inspiration? That, that particular Greek word is a word that means God breathed. Amen. It's talking about the breath of God. And we can go all the way back into the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then we move up to the book of Job, chapter 33, and verse number 4. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. The psalmist said, Psalms 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the hosts of them, notice, by the breath of His mouth. So, look. God you know God doesn't have to form something over millions of years as some have suggested God can just speak and it comes into existence that that is the power of God's spoken word and and this is what he's saying here he's In each instance, talking about the life that comes as a result of God speaking. So when we talk about the Bible being inspired, we're talking about something that is God-breathed. In other words, it was by the breath of His mouth that He gave us the living Word. It came from God, not from man. It's God-breathed. That's important that we remember that it's God breathe it's not something you know that a bunch of religious people got together and said, you know we're going to start a new religion we 'll call it Christianity, and Christ will be our hero, and we'll follow him, but you know we need some guidelines to follow, and so we'll put our heads together and we'll you know we'll come up with a uh, with a book uh to live by uh, you know It's not the invention of man. It's what God gave by inspiration. The next word helps us to understand what was inspired. Inspiration is God-breathed, but what did God inspire? Uh, Notice he says here, remember he's talking about the Scripture. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration. That Greek word translated scripture simply means writings, and he's talking about the writings that were God breathed. Verse 15 shows us what he's talking about here. We don't have to guess about it. From a child thou has known the holy scriptures that, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So that's what he's talking about. Write the scriptures. That, that, that is what is inspired. Now hang on to that thought because we're going to enlarge on it here in just a little bit. It's the Scriptures that are inspired. You see, the Bible is the only book on this earth that was written by God. It's the only revelation from God to man. There are no others. I remember somebody here, oh, it's been eight or ten years ago, I guess, someone that was, uh, uh, they were visiting the church and, and uh, they got to talking about the fact that they had read all of the, all of the major books and writings of all of the major religions and, and so forth. But, you know, they were curious about it. And, you know, as though to indicate that there is some good, some enlightenment to come from all of those writings. But let me tell you, everything else was written by man, not by God. So we're talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Well, notice how much was inspired. All. Boy, that's simple. It comes from a Greek word that means what? All. See, you know a little bit of Greek now. All Scripture. It means every Scripture you see. Now that's simple, but it is a serious factor because there are those that claim that there are only certain parts of the Bible that were actually inspired by God. And some have argued that that it refers only to the Old Testament because they would say in their argument that was all Paul had at the time. But notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say all Scripture from the past so as to exclude any future revelation. He just said all Scripture. And he's simply saying that if it is inspired of God, it is Holy Scripture. That's the point he's trying to make. If it is inspired of God, if it is God-breathed, then it is a part of the Scripture. And that would include the New Testament. You say, well, how do you know? Well, let me give you one example over in 2 Peter 3, verse 15. Notice what, what Peter said concerning what Paul wrote. He says, An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles... Speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. It's very clear that Peter is telling us that what Paul wrote is a part of the scriptures. That that couldn't be clearer than that. And he says these people that try to twist and distort, you know, the Scriptures, they are doing it to Paul's writing just like they do to other Scriptures. So that would have to include what Paul wrote. Sometimes you'll hear preachers talk about the fact that we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. We affirm our belief in the verbal plenary Inspiration of God's word, and whenever he's talking about the, the the verbal, he's talking about the words. We talk about the Bible being inspired. We're not talking about the Bible as a whole. You know, the, yeah, God God gave the Bible and inspired it. You know, we're talking about every word in the Bible came by God's breath. In other words, God said exactly what He wanted to say and exactly how He wanted to say it. So it's all of the Scripture. Every word, verbal, every word, all of it is inspired by the Lord. So it's, it's been revealed to us by the Lord, but it's recorded for us by man. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now while the Bible says every word of the Scripture is inspired of God, notice It never says the men were inspired. And a lot of times we hear people say, well, Paul was inspired to write this or inspired to write that. We we do it in the same way that we talk about someone, and you've heard people say, well, you know, maybe they just wrote a best selling book, and they'll say, well, yeah, God inspired me to do that, or God inspired me to write a song, or God inspired me to preach a certain sermon. Now, we know what they mean by that, but that's not what the Bible means here in our text. It doesn't say the men were inspired, but rather it says that the holy men were moved by the Holy Ghost to do what? To write the Word of God that was inspired by the Lord. It's the Word of God that's inspired, not the men. The men are moved. And notice the negative, notice the negative side of this. We've already commented on it. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. That is, it's not the product of man. I love what somebody said I read 50 years ago. The Bible is a book that man could not have written if he would, and he would not if he could. And how true that is. It's not the product of man, but notice here's the positive side. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That word move means to be carried along. It is a word that, you, that would be used back in that day to describe a ship that is you know, being driven by the wind. These holy men, they were moved, as it were, by the Lord to record the inspired words of God. And we see that again and again throughout the Bible. The phrase, thus saith the Lord, that or its equivalent, is used about 2,000 times in the Bible. Let me give you just a few examples of that. And I know... We we could spend an hour here reading all of them, but I just want to give you an overall view uh, of of how it speaks about those that that had received the word of God. Deuteronomy four two. We're talking about Moses now, and he said, "You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you." Then we hear from David in Second Samuel 23 and verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was in my tongue. Solomon said in Proverbs 22, 20, he says, Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth? Isaiah said... Hear the word of the Lord. In fact, he said that twenty times or more uh, in his writings. Jeremiah 1 9 says, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Nearly a hundred times Jeremiah says that he is speaking the word of The Lord, do I need to go on because we can talk about Ezekiel and Daniel, Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah. I mean, it's all through the Bible over and over again. These people. These people were certain that what they had received was indeed the word of God. They look, they were not guessing as as to what it was that God had given them. They knew that it had come directly from the Lord. And keep in mind these are people that that, that they were banking everything on this. They were risking everything. We're we're talking about people that were risking their lives to do things that seemed to be impossible and sometimes to do things that seemed to be absolutely foolish all because God said that's what you ought to do. You see, so they're not playing games here. And they are assuring us. Do you want to deny the record of Moses and David and Solomon and Isaiah and all the rest of them? And say, well, they didn't know what they were talking about. I don't know, it's like I said last week, you know, I tend to want to stand with those that have character such as these men did rather than those that, you know, that would deny the Word of God. They were convinced that they had received the Word of God. Now, here's the thing about it. None of those men were perfect. None of them. I was preaching in a conference several years ago. Where was I? Way up north somewhere. I was in Illinois or Michigan or somewhere up there in a conference. They had invited me to come up there. This was back during the time that the new King James Version had come out, and it was creating quite a stir, you know, and trying to justify some reason to change the regular King James Version. And And so I got up there, and someone, someone rebutted in a a oh, mannerly way or something that why should we accept the King James Version after all? Now I'm not sure where they got their information, but they had read in history that King James was a homosexual. What does that have to do with it? None of these men were perfect, and King James didn't write the Bible. All he did was to prove these men, you know, to put, it to put it together in the English language. And we're going to talk a whole lesson about that later on, by the way. But my response was, look, if God can cause Balaam's ass to speak, then God can use a homosexual to accomplish His will. You see, I mean, if God can speak through a donkey, and He did, by the way, then David, Solomon, none of these guys have to be perfect. And by the way, everything they said wasn't perfect. It was only when they were speaking prophetically as they were speaking as they were what? Moved. That that wind, that breath of God that was moving on them and motivating them to write that which was inspiration. Uh, There's a lot of things, and I always try to be careful about who I quote. Uh, uh, well, I, I won't mention that, but I try to be careful who I quote. I wouldn't agree with John and Charles Wesley about a lot of things. They were Methodists. I'm not. I'm a Baptist. So I wouldn't agree with a lot of things that they wrote. I wouldn't agree with a lot of things they believe. But John Wesley wrote something that impressed me that I wholeheartedly agree with, and, and, and I, I want to read it to you. It doesn't take long. He said, I beg leave to give a short, clear argument for the divine inspiration of the Holy Scripture. The Bible must be the invention of good men or angels, bad men or devils, or of God. It could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither could nor would make a book and tell lies at the same time that they were writing it, say, saying, Thus saith the Lord when it was their own invention. It could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they could not make a book. Which commands of all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their own souls to hell for eternity. Therefore I draw the conclusion that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. I know, I don't think I've ever read anything that to me that says it better than that. Good men, they they would not have written it. Bad men could not have written it. Certainly it must be that God wrote it. And it is such a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able, you know, to hold this Bible in our hands and to say with complete confidence that the same God who created heaven and earth, the same God has given us His very words. We don't have to wonder what God wants. We don't have to wonder about what God thinks. We know because He has spoken to us loud and clear in the pages of God's Word. Now that leaves one other area that we need to talk about tonight. And uh, the lesson tonight will be shorter than some of them, but, uh, you know, we're just trying to drive home the point. That the scriptures are inspired of God. Uh, they, you know, they were given by the Lord and they were received by men. But here's the third thing. The scriptures were received by the churches. That's more important than what you might think. And I've got a reason for saying that. First Timothy three, and here in verse number sixteen, verse fifteen, he explains. Why? It says here, the church. Notice this description of the church. It says it is the pillar and ground of the truth. Not some truth, but the truth. It is the pillar and ground. What he's saying is it is the custodian and the conveyor of truth. The church is. And by the way, the church is the only institution that Christ established. I, I, I was glad last week, I believe it was after the service, Brother Fred came up to me after the service and was talking about uh, some, some different things and wanted to know if I'd... Taught a series on the Trail of Blood, which for those of you that don't know, has to do with the history of the churches, specifically, you know, the Baptist churches. And I said, yes, I have. And we were talking about the fact that there are a lot of people that have never heard that. And by the way, later on, I don't know if it will be immediately after this series on the Bible, But sometime in the near future, it's on my heart, I think, that we'll take time to study that because we need to understand church history. We need to understand the importance of the church. The church, and by the way, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about some universal, invisible Mystical body like some people do. And I'm not talking about some church in the sense of a particular denomination. The Catholic Church or the Methodist Church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the church as an institution. And that institution is manifested in this world by local visible congregation. That's what I'm talking about. The churches that, that, you know, that have a heritage in, that they respect the authority of the Lord's church and one church started by another church and all adhering to the Word of God. And you go all the way back to the very first church and then naturally there were others that were established, local assemblies established in the other cities back in that day. And and as you well know, when we look at the epistles, most all of them are written to what? Churches. The churches in Galatia, the churches in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, and so on and so forth. And so whenever, whenever the apostles... Whenever the apostles were given the Word of God, then they related God's Word to the churches, and the churches received them. Now, naturally, and a while ago when I started, I said I wish I had time to read the first part of Second Timothy chapter 3, because it talks about what's going on in the world today and the fact that there are many false teachers. That's not something new. That's something that was going on back when that was written. And those false teachers were coming in trying to convince people, Oh, Look, you don't need to be listening to the Apostle Paul. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Listen to me. I've got a, you know, I've got a word from the Lord. So, I mean, we had a lot of counterfeit preachers way back then, and, and so all of a sudden, you've got churches living in confusion as a result of the false teachers that have trapped in during a period of time. But these these books. These books, these letters from the apostles to the churches, these and the others we'll talk about later on when we when we look at the big picture as to as to how God put all of it together, and the churches acknowledge you know that for the most part, there's not any real argument in regards to the Old Testament. you know Christians down through the ages all have agreed on that. The real battleground has been in regards to the New Testament. But the churches validated the, the 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 writings of the apostles in that they received them. Now maybe you're wondering, preacher, why did you take a whole evening service to talk about this subject tonight? Why? I, I mean, I could have preached about heaven, right? I I could have preached on something that might have been really interesting to you, like prophecy. We could have gone over there in the book of Revelation, you know, and looked at the Antichrist, and we could have talked about the coming of the Lord and so many different things. Why this? Why now? Just in case that maybe you're here and you think, well, you know, this isn't a big deal. It's not a serious problem. Let me leave with you some statistics that have that have been confirmed. Now, this, these here are not something that were gained yesterday, but something that I don't know, four or five, seven, eight years ago, something like that. Uh, but the research by the George Barney group, it's him and his associates, and, and I don't know of anybody that does a better job in, in being honest about their research than they do. And they reveal that 71% of Americans reject the concept of absolute truth. Now, let that sink in for a little while. They reject the concept of absolute truth. The majority of the people do not believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Everything is relative, you know. Well, you know, you've heard people like that. Well, it all depends on how you look at it. Now, everybody's got a different point of view and we you know we need, we need to respect each other's opinions and so forth be politically correct in other words and the only thing is those people keep telling us to be you know Politically correct and to be tolerant, they're the most intolerant people on the face of the earth. Because we come along and we say we believe the Bible is the verbal, plenary, inspired word of God—that you know it's the absolute truth—and boy, they cry foul right off of the bat. Now, now think about it: if we're if we're here in a country that where seventy-one percent of the people do not believe in absolute truth, what what can you expect? to happen in the future of a country like that. Well, let me tell you, it's downhill. It's what you can expect. And that's what the Bible says. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Now here's something even more shocking. Here it is. 62% of those claiming to be born again also believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. I don't even understand that. They claim on one hand, I've been born again, I'm a Christian, but I do not believe in absolute truth. Well, then how do you know you've been born again? How do you know whether you're right or wrong, going to heaven or hell or what? you But to think about 62% of professing Christians saying, nope, I don't believe there's any such thing as absolute truth. Now let's narrow it down a little bit more. Only 55% of the delegates at the Southern Baptist Convention in Louisiana, now this particular fact was back in in 96, So it's, but let me tell you it's worse today than it was then, but here's, here's the way it was then. Only 55% of the delegates at the Southern Baptist Convention of Louisiana in 19... 19- Ninety-six voted that the Bible is inerrant. Wow! Only if, if you're telling me, the other 45% do not believe that. It's no wonder that there are so many people so confused about the most important issues in life. So that's why we're talking about this tonight folks. And that's why we're going to keep talking about it over the next few weeks. Talk talk about probably next week we'll talk about the development of the Bible, the development of it. You know, we know we know hopefully now based on these three things that uh, the Bible was inspired by the Lord. We I hope have confirmed that. But we'll see how it was developed over a period of years. You start and think about it, over a period of 1,500 years and all of those different writers from various walks of life and Wow, it's kind of really amazing because it's not like they had their notes to compare with one another. So we're going to, we're going to look at how it was developed. And then I'm going to spend one night talking about the Texas Receptus. Now the Texas Receptus is the Greek text of the New Testament. That's what it's based on. And it's crucial that we understand that or we'll never have a clue as to what version of the Bible you know that we ought to, that we ought to use. And again, somebody said, well, what difference does it make? Well, let me ask you this question. If you have one version, let's say the King James Version of the Bible, and it says one thing, and you have another version over here, let's say the NIV, and it says another thing, then let me ask you, can both of them be right? Well, no, absolutely not. They can't both be right. Well, if they both can't be right, then which one do you know is right? You see, one of them has to be wrong. We have to have some justification for saying that we're going to stick with the King James Version of the Bible, so we're going to have a whole lesson on the Texas Receptus having to do with how, how that, that particular Greek text came to be the preferred text. It's, it's called, in fact, the Received Text. Then we're going to talk about the King James Version itself, reasons for adhering to it, and then we'll have a message probably on the benefits of the Bible and maybe uh, maybe by then kind of wrap it all up. But I hope tonight that we've said something that will help you to understand uh, maybe a little bit better as to, as to why we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, I, you know, I would love to thank every single person here is a bible believer and they don't have any doubts about that and what have you but we just absolutely never know when we assemble together this morning this i mean nearly every seat here was taken this place was packed out this morning and uh, you know it's I, I saw people that i've never seen before and uh, so you can expect that when it's like that there might be somebody there that's never received Christ as their savior You know, we never know. There just might be somebody that's been a member of the church for even a long time that's never really truly trusted Christ as their Savior. It might be that there are those that have harbored secret doubts as to whether or not the Bible really is the Word of God. And they've doubted, you know, in regards to their salvation, whether they go to heaven or hell. And, and maybe so far even that th- that the Lord has used His Word and used the you know the Holy Spirit to convince your heart. And there's just some business you need to do with God tonight. So we're going to stand. We're going to sing a verse of invitation. We ask Brother Nolan to come and Kathy and. And we're going to sing a verse of invitation if you're here and God's dealing with your heart about anything whatsoever. And there might be something that you, you don't want to speak to me or you don't want to speak to Brother Kenneth, that's okay. It might be you just want to maybe sit down where you are or come and kneel in prayer, whatever you choose, and do business with God. Father in heaven, how we thank you for giving us your word that we don't have to wonder, we don't have to doubt, but rather we have Your infallible Word that we can depend upon for every decision that we make. And I pray tonight that we might yield ourselves without any reservation to the teaching of Your Word. And may we, Heavenly Father, share it with others because there are those that have that have absolutely never heard the Gospel, those that do not know the way of salvation, those that do not have a hope of heaven in their hearts. So help us to share the Word of God with them. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.